Women do not have equal protection under the law. And that's a price for justice that we only impose on women, and it's outrageous. If you believe all people should be equal, then you're a feminist. I definitely consider myself a feminist. Well, it's Dr. Phil, and you found your way to fill in the blanks, and I am talking to one of my favorites, and I mean, she tells it like it is in a way that puts me in the shade. I'm talking to Wendy Murphy. Now, she is an attorney that specializes in the representation of crime victims, particularly women and children. For more than 15 years, Wendy has served as an adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law, Boston. She also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. She's done so much. I could go on forever and not even get to her. She's been a visiting scholar at Harvard Law School. She's also served as the Mary Jo Frug Assistant Professor of Law at New England Law Boston. She's prosecuted child abuse and sex crime cases for years. She formed the first legal organization in the nation to provide pro bono legal services to victims of violence involved in the criminal justice system. She takes on fights. She will charge any machine gun nest that she needs to. She's a columnist for the Boston Herald. She's published numerous scholarly articles, including a landmark piece explaining the legal relationship between sexual assault on campus and Title IX. So she is just all over this. And she just needs to have an opinion about something. She's just not very opinionated. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, because she has very, very strong opinions. So everybody, please welcome Wendy Murphy. You're going to love her just the way I do. Wendy, welcome to Fill in the Blanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Phil. I've loved your show for so long. I've enjoyed appearing on it a few times, and I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you. And tell me, how did you get involved in this particular area of the law? Tell me what guided you in this direction. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty simple story. Um, I think everybody has a story about something that inspired them uh, in their career that put them on a track they weren't necessarily planning to go down. And, and that's true for me. Um, I was prosecutor, uh, pretty routinely criticizing judges for how they were treating abused women and children in the sense that they were ordering them to do things that they weren't ordering robbery victims to do. Most significantly, they were ordering them to turn over years worth of counseling records, pediatric records, school records, uh, even though they weren't relevant and significantly predated the crime. And, and I just kept criticizing the court for treating these victims differently than other victims of other kinds of crimes. And it was irrational to me. And one day a judge said to me, he pulled his glasses down from his nose and said, Ms. Murphy, you are the government. Your job is to state the law, not complain about it. If you want to change the law, you have to get a different job. And uh, I guess that was the inspiration because I thought, wow, I'm the prosecutor. I, I think it's my job to stand up for victims when they're being mistreated. But this judge has just told me that's not my job. 
Um, so I do need to get a different job. And I literally left the DA's office as a prosecutor later that year and started doing pro bono work for victims, figuring this was a missing voice, if you will, in the system and that and that they needed to be heard. They needed to be in that courtroom objecting and saying, you're not treating me fairly. It's not right for you to treat me because I'm a woman or a child differently than you're treating the victim of a robbery or the eyewitness to a carjacking. So uh, when I started that part of my career, it was, again, all pro bono because most victims don't have any money. And I told my husband at the time, I'm just going to do this for a year or so, and then I'll get a real job. And um, that was about 30 years ago, and I've been doing pro bono work ever since. What is the mentality? Does this go back to the 14th Amendment, never really including women? Or, I mean, is it that most judges are men? Because as you know, when I had a real job before Dr. Phil, it was in the litigation arena. And I was many times court-appointed as a trial scientist to be involved in criminal cases on a pro bono basis. And I saw exactly what you're seeing, where there was clearly a double standard and they were required to produce all of this information, which was just so much ammunition for the other side to drag up irrelevant pre-crime information to impeach the veracity of the victim and use it against them. Where are the roots of that? Why is that going on? And it's still going on. First of all, can I just thank you for saying that so succinctly and so clearly from your perspective? Because uh, it is the mental health professionals who, who see it as much as the lawyers do. But again, they don't really have a seat at the table. They're hired, they come in, they do their job, but they see it and then there's very little they can do about it. And I really appreciate that you just described your own experience as a caregiver for traumatized victims, uh, watching the legal system in the name of justice re-victimize these people with irrelevant information, not just irrelevant, but irrelevant and confidential, privileged medical records that would not be happening to them if they had been robbed or if they were a male victim of violence. So your question, you know, what are the roots of this? Again, you hit the nail right on the head, Dr. Phil, by saying, is there something about the 14th Amendment um, underneath all of this? And the answer is absolutely. The 14th Amendment, we all know and love as a really important constitutional amendment that was adopted by this country in 1869, and it guarantees all of us equal protection of law and due process of law. The problem is, pretty quickly after that was adopted, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that women and only women were not covered by the 14th Amendment, that the 14th Amendment was really only meant to protect black men. So women of all colors and stripes uh, were excluded from really the most important constitutional protections in our in our laws, in our most foundational laws, uh, equal um, justice. Equal justice was denied women in 1869, and we still don't have it. That's what gives the judges permission and the power to say, it doesn't matter, Attorney Murphy or Dr. Phil, if you don't think this looks right because we're giving, uh, you know, better protection 
to other types of crime victims and we're mistreating women and children who've been abused, it doesn't matter that you think that's not fair. It may not be fair, but it's constitutional. And until we fix the 14th Amendment, it will continue to be constitutional. And that's why we've been fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment for over 100 years. The Equal Rights Amendment is really the repair of the 14th Amendment. It literally says you have to give women equal protection of law because you left them out of the 14th Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment, many people don't even know about. It was um, first passed by Congress in 1972. We never had it ratified by a sufficient number of states. And, you know, the important part of this story is that we need to get the word out. We need to get the word out that not having equal protection of law manifests itself in very real ways and causes suffering in the name of justice in ways that you described and in ways that I've been experiencing for decades. And see, that's the thing. And I think until a woman finds herself in the barrel, until she finds herself in the system caught up in this, I think there are a lot of people, men and women, but women that get victimized by it, are not aware that women do not have equal protection under the law. They don't have it constitutionally, and they don't have it pragmatically. And you don't realize that until you wind up in the court system, and there's somebody up there saying, HIPAA be damned, confidentiality be damned, and all of the rules of evidence that apply in other crimes all of a sudden are thrown out the window. Right. And all of these things that you can't bring up in a robbery case or you can't bring up in a murder case about pre-offense information that never gets in front of a jury all of a sudden is paraded out in front of the jury about a victim that has been brutally raped. They can now talk about what she did in high school, what she did in college, what she did at a party three weeks before this happened. And you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, this predated the offense. What the hell does this have to do with what happened that night? Yep. But yet it's admitted and it's not reversed on appeal when it is clear, it is clear violation of the rules of evidence. So yep. it doesn't happen just at the trial level. It's upheld at the appellate level. Yeah, exactly right. So when I, I've argued countless appeals uh, in these cases, and I've made this point that you cannot treat these types of victims differently. It's, it's just a violation of equal protection of law. And I make all these arguments that are about the Constitution uh, being designed to protect everybody equally and give everybody equal rights. And generally speaking, the courts say back to me, but you're wrong, Ms. Murphy. Uh, women aren't entitled to equal treatment and equal protection of law under the Constitution. You need to fix the 14th Amendment and then come back and make that argument to us. And boy, is that a hard pill to swallow to, you know, be in a court of law where there's some sign on the wall that says equal justice under law. And you know that's just not right. I give you a couple of good examples that apply specifically to therapy records that uh, were devastating in cases. And this continues to happen today. Um, one, I was representing a woman who'd been nearly killed by a man who had also brutally raped and, and killed other women. And she was brave enough to testify against him, and he demanded access to her counseling records, counseling records that predated this man's brutal assault of her. 
um, we fought like hell to stop those records from being turned over because when she had therapy, she was told by her therapist that that, that that was a private session, that what she was saying was confidential. And she needed that promise of confidentiality in order to be open about her feelings and to get better. But um, the judge basically, and, and when I challenged the judge who ordered the records turned over, I said, what does this have to do with anything about what happened the night he beat her? Uh, you know, why aren't you ordering her to turn over her grocery receipts if you don't care about relevancy, right? The judge slammed his gavel and said, Ms. Murphy, if you keep talking, I'm going to dismiss the charges and this man will walk free. That's what it came to. So my client starts sobbing. She begged me to give him anything he wants. If this man gets out of jail, he's going to kill me. Please just give him my counseling records. So we did. And um, in the records, there was a description of her being sexually abused by her dad when she was a little girl. Um, no one knew about it. Her family didn't know. And of course, what did that man use as evidence during the trial? That she had been sexually abused by her father and she was now falsely accusing him in order to avenge her childhood experience. Uh, that, you know, she ended up winning the case but what a price to pay that that had to be revealed to the whole world. Because the news was covering the case. Her family found out. Everyone learned something that should have been confidential, had nothing to do with the case, was deeply personal to her. And that's a price for justice that we only impose on women. And it's outrageous. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. It is outrageous, and it is a clear violation of the rules of evidence and what is admissible. And so they just, at that point, ignore the rules of evidence and say, we're going to suspend those because this is a woman. Yep. I'm not a lawyer, but the rules of evidence are very clear. And so a judge has to just say, I'm going to ignore this rule of evidence and admit this and let the jury see it, let the press in the room see it. And I don't understand how a sitting judge can ignore the rules of an evidence because of the sex of a victim. It's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. It's also, in my opinion, unconstitutional. But when push comes to shove and I make the constitutional argument before appellate courts, they remind me that women are not yet equal under the Constitution. We are not yet entitled to equal treatment or equal protection of law. And what that means, and it's very obvious, uh, you see it statistically in the high rates of abuse of women in this country. What that means is when you call the police or report an incident of violence against women to prosecutors and they decline charges or file charges and, and have the rules of evidence not work fairly, um, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, that's really the bottom line here. There's nothing you can do about it. And I like to point out to people that, you know, here's equal protection of law. Here's unequal protection of law. Here's where women are. That space in the middle 
is where rape and domestic violence and abuse happens with impunity under the law, because this is equal treatment and this is where women are. And everything in the middle is where violence happens with impunity. And there's nothing you can do about it, constitutionally or otherwise. You have you can't complain about it. Because if you complain about it, the courts are going to say, we're sorry, but you're going to have to fix the Constitution and come back to us later. There are certain words that we use that whitewash what happened, whitewash what they describe. And that's true in this arena. It's true in certain psychological things. Words like bulimia. You know, it doesn't sound bad if you say it real fast and it kind of alliterates well, but it actually describes throwing up sometimes 40, 50 times a day to the point that the acid eats holes in your esophagus and will eventually kill you. But the word bulimia, it just doesn't quite capture the gravity of somebody on their knees throwing their guts up until they die. But when you use words like sexual assault or molestation, rather than describing the acts that took place, I think words are very powerful. And you've spent a lot of time talking about and critiquing the vague language, such as molestation, sexual assault, which does whitewash very serious acts, which can involve penetration, et cetera. You've criticized the court, prosecutors all, for not being more aggressive in describing the gravity of these crimes, correct? Yeah. I mean, what an important topic. And I'm so grateful you brought this up because uh, language as you know, is uh, passively absorbed by all of us. When we read something or watch something, we just take it in very passively. We're not trained to be critical consumers of words and information. So we don't tend to think hard about the words that we use ourselves to describe things. And many years ago, I founded the first in the country, at my law school, I founded the first in the country program to in a systematic way, uh, critique the language used by courts and media in describing violence against women and children for, you know, very simple reason that if what is written or said uh, is either vague or erotic or um, just not clear about the nature of the harm the victim endures, then naturally our culture comes to understand that suffering as something inconsequential, not very serious, not worth worrying too much about. And in turn, you know, we, we don't get nearly as upset as we should as a culture about the problem, even though it's destroying lives, leading to high rates of domestic violence, homicides, suicides after sexual assault, and so on. One of my um, pet peeves that is used all the time in media and by the courts around this country is the phrase, the child performed oral sex. Uh, you read it all the time. And generally speaking, uh, that is a description that is the antithesis of what actually happens when a child is raped in a way that happens to involve an oral penetration. 
Um, the child isn't performing anything. The child is the recipient of severely abusive sexual violence. The child is not engaged in any kind of sex. So that whole phrase is so wrong. The child should not be described as the performer. The, the actor in that sentence should be the rapist. And so the correct way to describe what happened is the rapist penetrated the child's mouth. I mean, as, as blunt as that is, and as, a, as uncomfortable as it might make us feel, that's the truth. And we need to know the truth, we need to hear the truth, and we need to be uncomfortable in order to understand the severity of what a child goes through when that happens. And it's a very common form of child sex abuse. But that's the point. They need to feel uncomfortable to appreciate what the child endured. You don't want the jury to feel comfortable. They need to feel uncomfortable if they don't, they aren't grasping what took place at the time. It needs to be offensive to their sensibilities. They need to be uncomfortable hearing it. They need to be embarrassed to hear it. They need to feel shame that it occurred. They need to be outraged that it happened, not whitewashed with the language so they can sit over there and feel comfortable in the box. They need to be pissed off and stand up because of what happened instead of some judge allowing them to describe it is sex. Sex is something you do consensually when you are at an age and a mental capacity to give consent. Yes. Absent those two things, the capacity and the age to have the capacity to give consent, absent those things, you're not having sex, you're being raped. Yeah, and, and our language has to reflect that. I mean, that's the whole point of, of focusing on that one phrase. It's used all the time by media and courts because it makes people feel better. And it even feels erotic, which is much worse than just benign, right? That a jury should be thinking, and this is what happens. I've tried many jury cases, and when you use language like that in front of a jury, they naturally relate it to their own internal narratives and their own understandings of what they've gone through in their lives. And when they hear the phrase oral sex, you know what they're thinking of. It's not violence, it's pleasure. And you, that's not how they should be feeling when they hear the language um, from a prosecutor about what is a, usually a potentially life felony, right? If it's a life felony, use language of violence. Molestation, which you mentioned earlier, is another one of those fudge words that makes me crazy because what does it even mean to some people? They hear the word molestation and they they might default to the thing that is the least distressing to them, uh, you know, that there's a, a hand grab of the rear end. Uh, but to other people, they might hear the word molestation and think rape. We shouldn't have it be up for debate what words mean when we're trying to convey the truth about something horrendous that happened. This is the problem with the language we use most of the time when describing all forms of violence against women and children. It is vague, it is eroticized, it is um, soft-pedaled, and it is, generally speaking, um, not clear what happened. And so it's hard to be angry. If you read a news story about a guy who got probation for molesting a child, you don't even know if you're supposed to be angry because what if it was just a hand grab on the rear end, right? How do you get angry as a culture about injustice with very minor sentences against these monsters that are that are really destroying children's lives? How do you get angry about a, a meager punishment if you don't know what happened? 
That's a big part of why we do the project we do. We use, and we use sociolinguistic research to critique the language rather than just saying, we don't think that's fair, we don't think it sounds right. We actually bring sociolinguistics to our critiques so that when we send letters to courts and to the media saying, this is inappropriate and here's why, we've got science to, base, uh, to back us up. There's literal science that proves the use of erotic language or vague language is actually harmful to society. And then we give them alternatives. We say, here's a better way to do it. And we hope you'll adopt this um, new approach in the future. And a lot of courts agree with us. A lot of newspapers that we write to will send us thank you notes, but not all. Some of them will just say, uh, we know what we're doing. You know, we've got our own editorial staff. Thanks very much. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And it's what makes them uncomfortable. And they say, look, we're not trying to be sensationalistic here. Well, you know what? You need to be sensationalistic because this is sensationalistically bad. And people ask me sometimes, you know, Dr. Phil, you often say that rape is one of the most underreported crimes in the country. Because I've said, you know, one in four women are the victim of sexual violence. And at that, it's underreported. Why? These are the reasons why. What we've been talking about is the fact that they are subjected to these pre-offense audits of their life and everything in the world is pulled out. Like you said, a woman had to out the fact that things had happened to her with her father before where she had been raped by him. Then I've seen cases where they then take that and pull out research that says when that happens to a child, they often become promiscuous. And then because of the promiscuity, they wanted this. They use it to spin it against them psychologically. They go into their dating histories and put them on trial. All of these things are underreported. And that's why a lot of them don't come forward and bring charges against the person. Yeah. I, and it's, it's funny. Um, you know, rape is very underreported, always has been. Uh, and that's partly because we do make it painful to seek justice. Justice should not be painful. We should be celebrating people who are reporting crimes, whether it's a drunk driver, a bank robber, or violence behind closed doors. It's all violence against society. It's all crime against society. And it's not a private problem just because it happens behind closed doors. I think we forget that sometimes. So we need to reward people who come forward, treat them as heroic. Uh, because when people speak, when they talk about crimes that happen, no matter where they happen, it helps prevent crimes against others. That's one of the benefits of the criminal justice system. It deters other people from doing the same things. So if you keep pushing victims away of certain types of crimes, if you keep messaging them that it's going to be painful for them to participate in the legal system, you're basically telling others in society, don't bother. Don't bother because, uh, you know, it's not worth it. On the other hand, look how we treat people who witness arsons and bank robberies and drunk driving. Boy, they're up on a pedestal and we can't do enough for them and we don't ask them about their mental health backgrounds. You can literally be an eyewitness to a drunk driving with a long mental health history that may well affect your credibility. Nobody asks. 
Nobody asks because we want those people to come forward. We want to celebrate them as heroes in society for reporting violence. We really need to bring that philosophy to bear on all forms of violence, including crimes that happened in the family, behind closed doors. Every crime that happens, no matter where, is a public injury. It hurts all of us. And we, we don't think that way when it comes to violence against women. And that's one of the reasons we don't really um, get as upset as we should about the fact that um, so many victims don't come forward. You just don't see the outrage about the lack of reporting. In fact, if anything, you'll even see from advocacy groups, which makes me crazy, they'll say, oh, you know, we have to respect the fact that this rape victim doesn't want to come forward, doesn't want to testify. We have to protect the victims from the trauma of the system. That's crap, if you ask me. That is insanity because it's like indulging a terrorist. Well, the system is so terrible, let's just not bother with justice. No, stand up, fight, demand justice, kick back. If you're mistreated, make a stink about it. That's how change happens. You have to participate and complain to make reforms real. Just saying, I'm not gonna call the police or I'm not gonna report my domestic violence case because I'm worried the system isn't gonna treat me with respect. You're just rewarding the bad system, not to mention you're gonna get beaten again and again and again, and it's gonna escalate. Uh, and, and, and other women are gonna see that, um, that you're doing that. And so they're not gonna call and so on and so on. This is how we create a culture of tolerance for violence against women. And you know, it's not easy for me to say to my clients, it's not easy for me to say to my clients, you should testify because they think I know better than them. It's not, that's not my meaning. When I try to encourage them to testify, it's because I don't like rewarding the systemic injustices. It's just not fair to my clients or to women as a class. Well, undoubtedly, what you're saying is true. You don't reward bad behavior and you have to push back. The problem is, and I, I got to put my shrink hat on here. For a we find victims all up and down the psychological continuum. And some of these victims are truly psychologically damaged before, by, and after what has happened to them. They just simply don't have the psychological wherewithal they don't have the stamina, they don't have the emotional resources, they don't have the support system to endure the onslaught. And when they get held up to ridicule, like the client you talked about that ultimately won, but the family was dragged into all of this disclosure and all, there are some people that are severely depressed. They maybe have suicidal ideation. They may be on the brink of psychosis, or they may have issues that when you add the burden of all of this on top of it, they just simply don't have the mental emotional resources to carry that burden. So they can take one for the team but you lose them in the process. They either become so broken, withdrawn, commit suicide, check out in different ways, and not everybody can do it. I've had many 
a patient when I was in private practice in the situation where I knew very damn well they couldn't do it. They weren't the one to charge up that hill and fight that battle because they would never make it to the top. It's a really important point, Dr. Phil, and let me clarify what I was talking about because I would never, ever force someone to testify if it was going to hurt them. I would never do that. But here's what I want people to know. The system that indulges the idea cavalierly that it's too stressful to testify and just does it across the board, just lets women drop the charges or not testify because they don't feel like it or they're scared. The problem with that approach is that you're, you're teaching the offender to threaten, intimidate, you know, bribe the witnesses. And you're really giving complete control over the criminal justice system to the bad guys. That's number one. And that's a really important thing to remember. So my policy approach is not to always force victims to testify, but to have all prosecutors' offices have as a policy a presumption that the case will go forward and that the victim will be expected to testify because this is to message the bad guy, don't bother trying to threaten her, intimidate her, harass her into not testifying. You're not gonna get anywhere. It's just not gonna work and we're not gonna indulge you. There's actually some research from California that shows um, the benefits of my policy, my approach. I didn't come up with this idea. This is research from many years ago. Um, In year zero, there were something like 50 domestic violence homicides. And that year they adopted a policy which is called a no-drop rule, that once a domestic violence case is reported, it has to go through and the victim has to testify, no exceptions. They did this for five years. And at the end of the study, the domestic violence homicide rate went down to single digits. And, you know, that only policy change they made was that no drop rule. So they know that that was the reason women's lives were saved. Now, were some women forced to testify? A couple. Was it stressful? Absolutely. Was it worth it? A lot of lives were saved. Now, I still think if a woman can't testify because it's too psychologically overwhelming, you have to respect that. But if the reason she's not testifying is because she has no resources, she doesn't know where she's going to live, she has no money, she's afraid she's going to lose custody of her children, then my solution is don't indulge her fears. Give her a place to live. Give her free counseling. Give her the tools and the things that she needs to be able to become a strong person. Don't just say it's okay that you're such a, you know, you're you're so traumatized and suffering. Uh, We're going to leave you be. Take take advantage of the opportunity to give her what she needs to become strong and hold the charges open until she is strong enough. Reward her. Reward her. We have to turn this into a system of rewards. Yeah, that's an alternative if they can fund that. But that takes a lot of money and a lot of time and that may drop to single digits, but you got to wonder how many cases weren't brought because the woman said, no, I won't testify. So don't bring the case. It may have dropped to single digits for the ones that were actually brought, but you wonder how many said, no, I won't because I can't, but you did what you're saying where you said, look, we will support you. We will protect you. We will get you to the point where you're okay to do this before we ask you to do it. 
then you've got a different situation. Let me ask you about something else. For people that don't know, I want to talk for a minute about a judge that sat on the bench in Superior Court of California in the county of Santa Clara from 2003 to 2018. I'm talking about a former judge, Michael Aaron Persky. He gained a lot of attention for his ruling in the case of the people versus Turner. And in this case, there was a lot of controversy because a student at Stanford University, Brock Turner, was accused of the attempted rape of an unconscious 22-year-old woman, unconscious, and allegations were brought that he attempted to rape her when she was just totally blacked out, and he was sentenced to six months in prison when the prosecutors were asking for six years And the California Commission on Judicial Performance found no wrongdoing in their investigation of the case. But nonetheless, he was recalled by voters on June 5th, 2018, because they were outraged at what happened. Talk about that case and talk about that judge. Yeah, I I love this story for so many reasons, including that... Uh, It led to people rising up. Not all rape cases that are horrendously unjust lead to public uprising, in this case did. And I, uh, you know, someone who loves democracy, I really appreciated the way the public made uh, something important happen in this case. Um, Judge Persky, when he did give out his sentence, I think thought he was giving out a fairly tough sentence because the vast majority of rapists in this country uh, get no prison time at all. I mean, studies going back to 2002 um, and even more recently, 2012, show that only two to three percent of rapists spend even one day behind bars. So it's very likely Judge Persky thought that he was getting tough on Brock Turner. Um, And... You know, the the fact that he was comparing what he was doing to that statistic, I think, shows how wrongheaded judges are when they're doing their jobs. They're not supposed to compare their choice to bad data or data that's horrendously unjust, but rather to do what they're supposed to do uh, by giving a punishment that meets the crime. And this was not a run-of-the-mill rape, if there is such a thing. This was basically a woman who was you know, you may as well have uh, been a dead woman. I mean, unconscious to the point of absolute no action in her body. And she was drugged. I think people don't even remember that she she wasn't just drinking. She had been drugged and was unconscious for another four hours after they got her to the hospital. So she was really out of it. And he knew it. Um, and to take advantage of a person in that condition merits extra punishment, not a discount. And the the public perception that this was a discount was correct. So here's a judge who thinks he can do what he wants because in this country, judges really don't have much accountability. They always always cite judicial discretion 
as this uh, power that they have to give out whatever punishment they want, and no one ought to challenge them about it. And 99% of the time, they're right. There's very little you can do. Uh, you might, in cases where judges are elected, which is true in some states, not here in Massachusetts, but when judges are elected, the accountability is the public can then vote them out of office next time around. Same is true of prosecutors who don't file charges or um, file the right charges. I mean, we do have a voice as the people to vote those types of prosecutors out of office. But in many states, uh, you want the guy out sooner than before the next election. And that's what happened here. I mean, this recall decision was, I think, unprecedented. I, I could be wrong about that, but I, I, I want to say it was unprecedented, at least in a case like this it was. And it was an important message and a strong message, not just to Judge Persky, but to other judges. It was a shot across the bow, if you will, that you think you can do what you want, but you can't because the people will speak and they will rise up. My only frustration with the case was uh, the lack of conversation about how, although his sentence was meek, it was a longer sentence than virtually any campus rapist I've seen in my career. So I had mixed feelings at the time thinking, wow, this very wealthy guy from Stanford, uh, a man of some influence in terms of his family was, was being held accountable. I was so happy because I've taken on cases against Harvard and Princeton and Yale and those guys never get in trouble. They're far too entitled, far too white, far too wealthy. They never get in trouble. And here was a guy like that getting in trouble. So I, I thought, well, great. You know, it's not a long sentence, but it's some time behind bars. And boy, was I happy, surprised, but really happy to see the public rise up about that punishment as being woefully inadequate. Well, I was shocked to hear you say that only two or three percent of rapists ever do a day in jail. Yeah, that's been true for a very long time. Wow. Uh, you know, the narrative that we hear sometimes is, oh, the poor guy, he's being charged with rape. He spends, potentially spends the rest of his life behind bars because a lot of the rape statutes say if convicted, you could get any amount of time up to life. Um, and when you call it a life felony, it does sound so serious. And, you know, you do worry. You want to make sure there's due process for the offenders. And no one disagrees with that. But then when you look at the statistic, which is that you're far more likely to go to prison if you steal my money than if you rob my bodily integrity and violently destroy my body, uh, you know, then then you sort of get the real picture that the statutes, the potential punishments in the statutes have nothing to do with reality. Yeah, that's astounding. Now, I've got to ask you a couple of questions that go kind of beyond this, because you and I were in a conversation, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and Warren Farrell <laughs> was there. And I guess he's called the father of the men's rights movement. And you had a lot of issues <laughs> with what Warren Farrell had to say, including that men need a movement. In fact, you said to call a men's rights movement a movement is part of the problem that a movement is attached to an underclass, and it's very difficult to hear white men say they are enduring any kind of structural harm. 
you had a lot of problems with what Warren Farrell was selling from a man's point of view. Would that be safe to say? Yes and no. I mean, I, I think some of what he says I agree with. He um, he talks a lot about the fact that men are culturally forced into very strict roles where they're not allowed to be emotional or raise the children. They are only valued for how much money they make. I agree with him about that. I think it's terrible that men are valued only based on how much money they make and whether they um, are expressing their masculinity in an aggressive and rough, manly way. Uh, I, I, I think that's probably where we have common ground. Where I disagree with him strongly is the idea that the solution to that problem is a men's rights movement, because really um, men have had supremacy in this country since the beginning. And as I mentioned earlier, in 1869, the Constitution declared men supreme under the 14th Amendment. Uh, and until we fix that, until women are actually equal humans, equal citizens in this country, it's um, I think it's just offensive to have a men's rights movement. Let's get women equal first and then, you know, whatever movements we have will you know, we can at least be at a level playing field. He was saying that women have a choice to be a mother or a professional or both. And you said he's 100 percent wrong. Why do you say that? Well, first of all, women are not just in these two boxes. I think women are much more complicated and interesting people than uh, just mothers or workers. Uh, and also, you know, as a mother and a worker, and a lot of other things. I go fishing and I hang tile and I enjoy hot yoga. <laughs> um, I think to think of women as multidimensional is important, but it's also really important not to put them in this dichotomous choice because by definition, if you only can be one thing or the other, then when you're choosing one thing, you're doing harm to the other and vice versa. And enormous numbers of women in this country are very happily uh, doing a lot of things. So, you know, some of the time they are focused on their families. Some of the time they're focused on their work. Some of the time they're doing both things at the same time. I mean, I've brought my newborn to court during a jury trial. I asked a judge for a break so I could breastfeed her. She was only two weeks old. I had to induce the birth of my fifth child so that I could, on a Sunday night, so that I could get to the Supreme Court in my state Wednesday morning with a two and a half day old baby in tow. Um, I've also asked my children, obviously over the years to uh, tolerate my work. Sometimes I'd have to be on a call with the oh, Department okay. whoa, of Justice. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. That didn't sound like a whole lot when you said it real fast, but hold on. You induced your fifth child and then took it to court two and a half days later? I did. I had to because the court knew that I was pregnant and they ordered me to be at the hearing at the Supreme Court. So my baby didn't come out by Sunday night. I asked my doctor, please, she was overdue. So she was quite cooked, ready to come out, but she wasn't out by Sunday night. I asked my doctor to please induce me. 
because assuming everything went well, I would get out of the hospital Tuesday afternoon and be able to get to court with her because obviously I was a nursing mom uh, Wednesday morning. And that's exactly what I did. She was two and a half days old. And I was arguing the case completely exhausted, still wearing maternity clothes, brain dead, but it had to be done. So I, I mean, I mentioned that only because it's, it's what, it's what we do as women. Um, you know, we, and men do it too. I, I don't mean to make this just a women's issue. Men do it too. They just don't do it as 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 much and they don't do it with the same intensity because they haven't had the primary responsibility as as um, the caregiver to the kids for for a long time that many more men do today obviously than ever before but the fact is we have a very um busy society where these days you almost always have to have both parents working um, that means if you want to have a family, you're doing lots of things at all times. And you have to ask your family to bend a little when your work intrudes in their space. And you have to ask your work to bend a little um, and allow your family to intrude sometimes. There's no other way to make it happen. We can't be binary about this. We can't only be parents or workers. We have to be more sophisticated about how we see the overlapping um, demands on our times. And that goes for men and women. Yeah, but that's being a workhorse. Two and a half days, that's pretty astounding. Well, I brought a babysitter. I didn't bring her and like plop her in the chair next to me. I brought I brought two babysitters. She was really um, quiet during the hearing, except when my opposing counsel insulted me and she screeched. And then she went back to sleep again. It was, I think it was meant to be. It was fine. You know, I mean, there are women who, they just, if you have babies and you're a lawyer, uh, your clients need you and the courts are not very accommodating. They just aren't. I mean, I, I can tell stories all day long about jury trials and court, court cases I've had where because I was pregnant or had a newborn, um, I just, I had to do what I had to do because the courts are not very um they're not very woman friendly. They're not very mother friendly. So I wasn't going to indulge them. I was going to accommodate myself and do what I had to do. And that includes yelling at the courts sometimes. I, I had a judge say to me once when a jury was out deliberating, two of my children were in daycare and I had to go pick them up. And she said, uh, the jury wants to stay late tonight because they're going to have a verdict. And I said, but I have to go get my children at daycare. And she said, oh, well, here, you know, use my phone and 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 you can make a call. And I said, who do you think I'm calling? Like, I'm, I'm going to get my children. I don't have anyone to call. And you will tell the jury to either come back now or come back tomorrow. But I am not going to leave my children at daycare because the jury feels like staying late. And had I not been aggressive like that, um, you know, I, I'm you got to do it. You got to do it. And the jury came back right away and they had a guilty verdict and everybody was happy and it was fine. But, you know, women do have to say, listen, this is part of who I am as a lawyer and you, judge, are going to have to accommodate me in some fashion. It's not a disability. It's just part of life. It's how we recreate as a species and you have to accommodate yeah. this. You just yeah, have of course. to. Well, let me ask you this, and then I'll let you go, I promise. But I want people to hear this because, I mean, obviously, 
you're a hard charger on these issues, but then I've gotten to know you and you're a very reasonable person. You have a great sense of humor. You look at both sides of the issue, but a lot of people would look at you and say, well, she's a feminist. So that's ball busting for men or whatever, which nothing could be further from the truth about you. You are a feminist, but you say feminism is not toxic. People are toxic. How do you define feminism? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of men are feminists and lots of women aren't. Um, you know, it's and it's not about hating men. It's just about your belief system. Uh, and I ask my students this every year. Do, do, you, do you see yourself as a feminist? Some of them, their hands go up. Some it's a half a hand. And they're confused because they're not sure what it means. Um, there is a definition, and then there's a cultural misunderstanding of the definition. Feminism simply means that you believe in women's social, political, and economic equality. That's it. And when you explain it like that, everybody says, oh, well, then I'm a feminist. Um, I think there are some people who think it means you have to be a bra-burning lesbian man-hater. Um, I guarantee you I love men in always. I've always loved men. Um, and it does not mean that you're militant because, you know, militant is kind of a, a style, not a belief system. It might mean you choose to be more aggressive in your expression of your beliefs, but uh, I'm not particularly militant. I, I believe that most ordinary people support feminism because they don't believe anybody should be a second-class citizen. They don't believe anybody should be unequal. So if you think that all human beings, and especially in a democracy like the United States of America, if you believe all people should be equal, then you're a feminist. It's really that simple. And I do, you know, I do feel for men because I think, I think they don't necessarily, at least the men's rights groups, don't necessarily see feminism as a good thing for them. And I think it's a terrific thing for them because number one, it will help to liberate them from these chains of masculinity that have forced them to behave in ways that often make them uncomfortable, but they're doing it anyway because they want to be seen as a guy um, or that, you know, they feel compelled to make a lot of money because that's what men are supposed to do. I think it's very liberating feminism for men. And I also think that, um, you know, when you think about the Equal Rights Amendment, which we've talked about, Men forget that it's all about sex equality and maleness is a sex. So as soon as the Equal Rights Amendment is in place, that's going to protect men against discrimination as well. And they do suffer discrimination sometimes um, in, in lots of different ways. Well, you know, without the Equal Rights Amendment in place, without the 14th Amendment protecting against sex discrimination, when men suffer discrimination and they go to court to complain about it, they have that same second class problem that women have. So really, it's just a matter of understanding each other better and understanding that sex equality, equality between the sexes, is going to be great for both genders. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. I've been married 44 years, and Robin and I have been together for 50, and I think we'd been married maybe a year. And she was working as an industrial engineer at a really large plant our first year of marriage and there was some guy really hitting on her and she was telling me about it. And I said, would you like me to handle that for you? And she said, Oh no, I got this. I don't need a damn bit of help. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I love that attitude. She said, no, no, no. 
I got this. And I thought, oh boy, is this guy got a rude awakening coming? She's going to drop him in his tracks. And I thought, you know, maybe I should warn him instead of help her with him. Good for her. She's a strong woman. I, I just love her. Yeah, she really is. And she just loves you as well. So I definitely consider myself a feminist. And I'm astounded that we're here and having these conversations about women in America that do not have equal protection under the law, do not have equal rights under the law. And it's not just in the litigation arena. It's in so many different ways. But the fact that you're bringing such a bright light to this, and I love the fact that you focus on the language that's used, because I am such a believer in the power of words, the power of language that we use. I mean, when I'm talking to somebody and they say, oh, I just had a horrible day. It was just horrible. And I think, really? I mean, go to a children's burn unit. That's horrible. You being 15 minutes late for lunch and having to go back and get something you forgot, that's inconvenient. That's not Mm -hmm. horrible. But when you tell yourself you had a horrible day, when in fact it was inconvenient, when you say someone was molested and you don't tell the jury what really happened, tissues were torn, blood was had, a child was violently assaulted. Language is powerful. Use words to say what really happened. Don't catastrophize when it wasn't, and don't trivialize when it was. That's so powerful. And the fact that you're doing this sociolinguistic research and educating the court system about it, that may be one of the most powerful things that you ever do. That may be your most powerful legacy in all of this. I'm a strong believer in that. So God bless you for doing it. Thank you for saying that. It's a very important project to me, and um, my students really love it. That every year they they get excited about knowing that as lawyers, they don't have to just argue the law. Sometimes they can make change by uh, stepping into other disciplines and helping reform systems in ways that no law school professor is ever going to teach them. Exactly. Well, Wendy Murphy, lawyer, litigator, warrior, activist. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I've been so anxious to do this where we didn't have a fact pattern that confined us. And I mean, you're so great analyzing the fact patterns and shining a bright light on what really happens in a particular case. But I've been so hungry to talk to you about these issues in general. I think All of our viewers and listeners are going to be absolutely intrigued by everything that you've shared with us today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Phil, so much for having me. I've been a big fan for a long, long time, and it was my pleasure to be here with you today. Well, I hope to see you soon on a case that we're working on because you add so much. So I'll let you go now, and we'll talk very soon. Anytime. Thank you. Wendy, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.